Hello and welcome to the BS History Podcast. My name is BS Dreyer and whether or not those initials are fitting, I'll let you judge. Now, today I want to do a little episode on a topic that has kind of gotten on my mind lately. I've been spending some time um, traveling a lot and I've been reading a lot of articles and some of the articles that you will find kind of on the internet kind of humor sites or sort of like popular history type websites etc we have these articles that are basically about how some famous person achieved a really great achievement by the time that they were you know a very young age and the implicit humor is you know uh, you should feel bad whether that's because you're you know a lazy millennial who still has yet to find a steady job or whether it's because you're you know like 60 and uh, you've had a normal career and somehow that's now a bad thing because you didn't you know invent something really amazing or you know conquer a different kingdom it's it's very weird phenomenon it's these articles or memes and stuff where you will see people uh, writing about people like uh, Alexander the Great who ruled an empire um, and stuff like that but uh, I just wanted to let everybody know tell everybody that uh, those articles are wrong you know there are remarkable people in the world uh, just in, in our present modern day you can point to people like Malala Yousafzai or anybody else but uh, and, and while I don't want to like um, put her achievements or anybody else's achievements you know put them down I still want to say that no man or woman is an island you know many of the people who achieved a ton or a really great achievement in their youth had very fortuitous circumstances to thank as much as talent or hard work and um, today I just wanted to go through a, a few examples of some of those people where I feel like these articles tend to kind of paint them as these uh, renegade lone wolf people who just did everything on their own but in reality they had a huge amount of help and the only reason we sort of know their names and not the names of the people who helped them is because of circumstance. Well, let's start with uh, Mary Shelley. Mary Shelley is a name that any young aspiring writer, or particularly in science fiction, science fiction, uh, it's not science fiction, science fiction, will be met with a million times. You know, between the ages of 18 and 20, she wrote a genre-defining piece of literature called Frankenstein or the Modern Prometheus, which, of course, is the Frankenstein story that everybody knows because it's been redone you know probably over a thousand times it was published in 1818 in Georgian era England so this was no easy feat for a woman uh, yet alone a young one and of course it was first published as an anonymous writer and it was only when the second Parisian edition hit the shelves in France that anyone found out that it was a woman who had written it but um, Mary Shelley although you know it was an incredible uh, achievement and her childhood was definitely no picnic 
uh, with a very mean stepmother, kind of straight out of Cinderella. Uh, she was no ordinary Georgian era woman in England. Her father was a famous author and her mother too. They wrote such heavy hitters as Inquiry Concerning Political Justice and uh, her mother wrote A Vindication of the Rights of Women. Uh, in other words, you know, Mary Shelley was basically trained from childhood to follow in her parents' footsteps. Uh, living in a highly intellectual environment, she and her siblings were given the best education possible. Since this was an era when uh, authors actually mattered a great deal and made good money without, you know, dragons or sexy crimes or great horror, uh, Shelley had a very decent standard of living. And, you know, while her novel is arguably the first true science fiction story, and very important for the way that it spurred literary exploration of scientific discoveries, it was not taken out of thin air. The upper levels of English society of which she, she was a part of were obsessed with the occult and new scientific discoveries, especially on how electricity worked, which if you've read the story or seen any of the thousands of movies, you'll know it's a pretty central point in the, in the, in the plot in Frankenstein. Uh, Shelley probably knew at least a handful of people who thought it was a very real possibility that man could reanimate the dead with some lightning because they had seen, you know, electricity uh, being used to make muscles spasm in animals and that kind of thing. I mean, it was a popular thing to go and see, you know, you'd go and see somewhere and somebody would have had a cat or a dog or a frog or whatever uh, that was dead and then with some electricity they could make you know, the limbs move and people were stunned and amazed, of course, because this was a very important discovery to be sure. And it's not that the fascination was unwarranted. It was just not, you know, a totally original idea. And she also had literary luminaries like Lord Byron as a friend and Percy Bysshe Shelley as a husband. So that was no small thing either. In fact, had it not been for Percy's encouragement, even after the loss of their first child, Frankenstein likely would have never been written. So having grown up in a family that was affluent, intellectual, and light years ahead on the whole gender equality thing, with a keen interest in science and with a team of friends that kind of read like a who's who of late Georgian early Victorian literati, it frankly be almost embarrassing if Mary hadn't produced some kind of great book by the age of 20. Uh, that's not to put down her achievement again in, in any way, but it's just to say that, you know, if you in your life have not been so fortunate to have very wealthy parents, uh, a great education, lots of free time, a loving and supporting partner, uh, great friends who could help you, and you could spend, you know, basically all your time every day just pondering science and how to write well then you know don't feel bad that you didn't write a great book by the time you were 20 you just didn't have those kind of circumstances um, another perhaps bigger example of just what privilege can do for you even though he's often depicted as someone without a lot of privilege is the story of Horatio Nelson and while it's true that Horatio Nelson was not himself already some kind of like big shot 
noble lord um, at a time when when that was the prevalent like background for anybody in the very upper echelons of the British uh, military or really any military pretty much anywhere in the world let's be honest um, he, he was certainly sort of has become at least the kind of very embodiment of why Britannia ever ruled the waves he was a wise admiral the right honorable the Viscount Horatio Nelson knight of the most honorable military order of the bath and is probably uh, Britain's most celebrated officer and kind of has a title and a life so quintessentially British that you know a talking scone whose like defining trait is intense politeness would kind of feel inadequate I feel uh, the good captain famously captained his first ship at the tender age of 20 um, and that's kind of one of those moments that is often pointed out in these kind of articles on the internet as wow you know Nelson was out there when he was 20 you know defeating pirates and, and being a hero in the British Navy well that's a truth with the certain levels of modification there um, Horatio Nelson actually when he was 20 had at that point already eight years under his belt in the British Navy as a 12 year old he became a coxswain under Captain Maurice Suckling um, and a coxswain is actually a very important position on a ship you're kind of tasked with steering and navigating basically as a coxswain and kind of makes you a day-to-day -day boss or manager on a ship and this was all possible because Horatio had been able to attend grammar school prior to his naval career for a young boy in 18th century Britain that was far better than the standard occupation of you know uh, helping that farm all day every day or starve to death um, yeah it, it wasn't a great era for, for most common people and uh, the captain that he served under before he became a captain himself Maurice Suckling was also uh, his uncle so you know this was nepotism uh, you know in in a very straightforward sense and it might not have been out of the ordinary for a 12 year old with kind of good parentage to instantly become basically second to only the captain on the ship in in these times but it must have kind of sucked for the ordinary hardened seaman uh, because this dude was not well suited at all Horatio suffered from chronic seasickness all through his life. Uh, so kind of the dude that all of Britain, pretty much the rest of the world, thinks of when they hear the word admiral uh, was seasick all the time. It's kind of like if Neil Armstrong had been afraid of heights or something. And Lord Nelson basically started out, yeah, as a privileged seasick prep school boy. Like, you know, many a kind of spoiled brat before him. He also dabbled in politics luckily with limited success because uh, Nelson also very much enjoyed the company of slave owners so much so that he actively fought against the British abolitionist movement um, although it's he's a weird character because he did also help out slaves owned by other European countries um, specifically freeing some of them um, he also saved the Haitian general uh, Joseph Christian although that likely was because the Haitians were fighting the French 
Um, so, you know, at least his racism took a backseat to the proud British tradition of hating mainland Europe, I guess. But um, yeah, he, his political views have uh, not dated well, so to speak. Um, they haven't held up over time, which is true of pretty much every historical figure. So that's not really a specific take at Horatio Nelson, but it it kind of puts his character a little bit more into light. The kind of yeah, the kind of privileged circles, you know, that he actually, you know, wound up hanging out with you know is, is slave owners and you know politicians and that kind of thing uh, and noblemen so even though he might not have been a nobleman by birth you know he certainly became one by proxy uh, so to speak and his most sort of important contributions when we got back to the whole question of age actually came much later in his life he fought a series of engagements against Napoleonic France as commander of the Mediterranean fleet. That's what he's most famous for. His myth was cemented at the Battle of Trafalgar, during which he was, of course, wounded and eventually succumbed to his wounds. Um, although, to the very last, the man was spoiled. He's not like the heroic kind of figure in the paintings where he's, you know, leading his men while mortally wounded no no he was giving lemonade and watered down wine as you know people were dying around him on the ships and it was not a luxury afforded to the other 457 british sailors who died that day so it's very much a story of privilege and um, you know really although dying at age 45 might have been a little early for a landlubber even though it's so long ago when 45 was actually, you know, a decent age to live to. It, it was really impressive in the Royal British Navy at the time. The kind of, you know, conditions that people who were in the Navy at the time lived under were, were truly horrific. Uh, the diet was terrible. The work was incredibly hazardous. And so many, many people died. You know, uh, most, you know, young boys who joined the Navy around the same age as Horatio Nelson without, of course, the kind of contacts and education that he had, well, they, they died very early on because it was incredibly dangerous. They would, you know, be the ones to um, to kind of go down into the, um, the gunpowder rooms and that kind of thing. You would send, you know, little 10-year-old boys uh, to go get highly explosive stuff during battle and that kind of thing. It was, it was just a terrible life on a ship in many different on many different levels so of although nelson definitely lived a rough life you know it's all relative and he lived the best possible life for a man who spent a lot of his life on these ships which were yeah not exactly five stars ho hotels admittedly if nelson's career should remind us of anything it's that behind every great military man there are thousands of unknown soldiers which kind of brings me on to the big one, the one that's almost always mentioned in these kind of articles about people who achieved great things at a very young age and, you know, parentheses, you should feel bad because of that. Well, it's Alexander the Great, of course. Alexander III of Macedon, better known as Alexander the Great, has basically become synonymous with achieving a ton by a very young age. He has been a source of inspiration for, you know, egotistical maniacs from Julius Caesar to uh, the fictional Ozymandias um, because his empire got so vast and he's so prominently featured on coins from 
the period everybody even kind of has an idea of what the guy looked like even though it's a very long time ago which is impressive and there's no doubting that what the Macedonians under Alexander or I should say the Greeks really uh, under Alexander accomplished was incredibly impressive but like any leader the success of his uh, time as ruler was largely dependent on his predecessors actually Alexander's father Philip II of Macedonia was a very shrewd king not only did he innovate the military giving birth to the famous Macedon phalanx which was a military invention that was incredibly important to many of his, Philip II's battles, but certainly also to Alexander's later battles. And Philip II also went more than toe-to-toe with Athens, the uh, regional superpower at the time. And uh, Philip's own predecessor, Perdiccas III, had kind of done the same to Athens. So it was a weakened Athens that faced Alexander by the time he came to power. In fact, thanks to the ebb and flow of warfare in Greece prior to his reign, it is no surprise that the Macedonians up from the north were able to control the peninsula under Alexander. It was kind of uh, almost weirder if they hadn't been able to um, to conquer the, uh, the different uh, city-states and kingdoms on the Greek peninsula, because they were better equipped, had, you know, uh, a new innovation in military and fortuitous circumstance, and none of it was because uh, anything Alexander the Great had done. So it was a really great start, a really lucky start to his uh, whole career as a ruler. And it was not just military innovation and fortune that enabled Alexander to run rampant across half the known world. Um, He was famously tutored by Aristotle His educators also included the very best military men, such as the famous General Antipater. And he was taught by numerous other scholars and artists, you know, the very best that his father could find. Which were many, because he was a very powerful king. It's a bit like how private schools set people up for success in our modern day. Just rather than a parent who's a powerful CEO, it's a parent who took and literally took an entire gold mine from a powerful city-state. Specifically, Philip II wrested control of Mount Pangaean from uh, Athens. So, you know, it, this is the kind of uh, dad you're, you're having there. That's, that's a pretty good start in life. Another thing is numbers. You know, this all happened more than 2,000 years ago. Greece itself has a larger population now than the whole of the Macedonian Empire had at its greatest extent. It, we tend to forget this, you know, just how few people actually were living in the world until relatively recently. But and and it seems kind of like that should be wrong, but that's that's pretty much the way it is. Or yeah, uh, and it's a hell of a lot easier to conquer peoples, multiple peoples, when they are few and scattered. And uh, of course, the Macedonians were fewer too. Uh, the Greeks in general were fewer, um, but. Um, You know, I think you, yourself, dear listener, uh, given the opportunity to travel back and given Alexander's kingdom, his advisors, his army, you could probably do better than him with your modern know-how of how to avoid dysentery and the ability to kind of sort of remember the designs of maybe medieval weaponry that, you know, for these people would be close to actual magic. And 
Of course, if you know the story of the Macedonian Empire, you know that although it left a massive legacy, it fell apart very quickly after Alexander Shang's death. Frankly, had Alexander lived longer, his legacy would likely have been one with a lot more negatives. His army, stretched thin at the time that he died, would have to, either with Alexander at the helm, attempt to assimilate more people into their forces, which his successors briefly attempted with very limited success, or mostly retreat back to Greece as they eventually did. It was not a tenable, you know, kind of situation that they were in. It was impressive that they were managed to conquer all this land, but they didn't really conquer it so much as they invaded and then went away again, you know, the vast majority of them anyways. And you can get lucky against formidable foes such as the Persians and successfully invade places like Egypt and India, but it's real difficult to maintain control, especially when communications has to be sent by boat or horseback. So at the end of the day, my point kind of is that you should not feel bad if you don't have a huge empire by your late 20s. A lot of things in life are a lot tougher when your dad isn't a literal king and you lack thousands of loyal soldiers. You know, it's one of these very weird examples that you come across very often of people, you know, looking back at history and ignoring all the circumstance just takes a few aspects of the lives or the deeds of a few select people and kind of begin venerating those people as if they were, you know, fully themselves responsible for what they achieved and it's a kind of myth that even today we put on with the, in terms of politicians and celebrities too who also like to perpetuate that kind of myth that like they were completely self-made and you know they didn't have much help at all you know coming up in the system uh, in any way when the fact of the matter is anybody who ever amounts to anything in this world has an incredible amount of support from other people to thank for it. There's there's just no other way to really get ahead in the world. Uh, humans are social animals, we live in a society, you need other people around you and you need to be on good terms with those other people in order to have any kind of success. And that's true now as much as it was you know, 2000 years ago. Well, I think that's enough of a rant from me today. As always, you can find me on Twitter at bs underscore rare and feel free to reach out with any questions comments or suggestions for future episodes i hope you feel that today's episode has had a little bit more history than bs and um, as always thank you for listening